Welcome to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton. My guest this week is the manager of the Waverton UK equity fund, Tinica Fricke. It was great to speak to her. She has a really interesting take on how to play the digitalization theme in the UK. Not a market known for its tech giants. We discuss the investment cases for Ocado and Prudential and go on to discuss the recent listing of Deliveroo. Although, caveat, 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 this was recorded prior to its listing last week. This is a long one, but it's a good one. And I think it gives you a really good insight into her thought processes and how she looks at stocks. And at the end, there are some great tips for all you budding fund managers out there. So without further ado, this is the Why Invest podcast. Tenika Fricke, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Tenika, we have seen an acceleration of digitalization thanks to the COVID restrictions and shares in some of the world's famous technology stocks, mainly at the growth end of the market, mainly in America and China, have outperformed significantly. Now, as a UK fund manager, how are you playing this digitalization trend? Or are you happy just to sit on the sidelines? Well, you're absolutely right, Doug. You know, I think digitalization was already happening. And the fact that, you know, we all forced to be working from home and interacting from home. It's just accelerated, you know, the demand for digital products. Now, it's absolutely true that in the UK, we don't have as many companies that you could classify as technology companies, but it doesn't mean that they don't use technology or digitalization for that matter to access their growth. So there are actually some really interesting companies that are real beneficiaries from digitization. And probably, you know, the easiest company to directly see that as a benefit is Ocado that only delivers groceries at your home that you've ordered, you know, on your PC or on your phone. And they started this journey in the 2000s, actually, ironically, after the, sort of the first internet sort of excitement started. But the UK was very slow to take up, you know, ordering groceries from home. And we liked going to the supermarket and stocked up. However, now, you know, we can't. So before the pandemic, about 5% of all the groceries we bought in the UK were ordered online for home deliveries. And the latest statistics that I have seen, which are probably the end of February, this is now 12%. So this is, you know, whilst 12% still sounds low, you know, this is a more than doubling of the number of groceries that are now being ordered online. And, you know, I have to fess up that we've sort of been an early Ocado adopter because it's just so easy, you know, because really we're buying more or less the same things, you know, week in, week out. And online, you've got, you know, your shopping list saved, if you like. So it's extremely convenient. I firmly buy into once you've experienced how easy this is, that it's actually a permanently changed shopping behavior. Um, so how do you think about Ocado? Do you think of it as a technology stock and value it that way? Or do you think of it as a sort of retail stock or sort of consumer staple stock, really? That's an interesting point. It used to be classified as a supermarket, which I think is completely wrong. I firmly 
see it as a technology stock, but it's got an unusual, but I think really valuable hybrid model because delivering groceries at the home is not an easy, it's probably one of the most complex logistics exercises because it contains perishable items and it contains crushable items. So this is the, the fact that they can practice trying different things, their logistics in the real life situation, actually delivering groceries home, I think actually is an advantage. I think the future value is all about them selling those learnings through technologies, through software solutions, through network models to other supermarkets so that it becomes a grocery technology company and it is starting to be registered like that. And I think in the future, it will probably go beyond the groceries, but that will take much longer because of COVID sort of their, you know, their opportunity within grocery technology is just ginormous. So they can stick with grocery technology. So yeah, I see it as a technology company, but I also acknowledge that it delivers groceries. And I remember the CEO once said the two most difficult items to get right is fish and raspberries, you know, and it just if you think about it, fresh, you know, you, you can't have any bacteria getting close to that. The temperature has to stay right. And, you know, how easily raspberries are crushed and then they're lost, you know. So this is not an easy solution. And I think that's the opportunity because they do it really, really well. Well, you say they do it well, and that's great. And we both live in the UK and know and love Ocado and see that the Ocado trucks up and down our high streets. But how would you compare the technology that they've developed on the world stage? And you know, who are their biggest competitors on the world stage? And are they up at the top table as a result? Well, I think they are at the top table. And at the moment, I mean, there's lots of different ways that different companies are, you know, trying to get groceries to our home. Most competitions seem to be focusing on, you know, the items get picked in the stores, they get picked in your local supermarket. What I like about Ocado is that their technology, because they started with really big warehouses that are pure logistics with sort of robots humming back and forth. And it's, you know, we really got interested because our US technology analysts went to visit and thought it was much better than what he'd seen for Amazon, for example. So I think from a, you know, what they do within the big warehouses, they're very much up there, but they haven't stood still. So they now also offer solutions to make the store picking, so picking your grocery within supermarkets, as efficient as it can be. And they also have what they call smaller fulfillment cell centers so that you order something that you want to have delivered, you know, the same night because you want to buy a meal for that evening. So it's a one hour delivery slot with limited choices. So I like the sheer, the end to end solution that Okada offers. And there is no competition in that because it's not, yeah. So it's integrating it all that it starts from your app on your phone or your application on your PC. And then it's integrated all the way to the delivery. So it's very customer friendly. And also the fact that they have that contact with the customer, that can also mean that there's a lot of customer data that gets developed. And it's a bit like Amazon where you, you know, 
if you buy this book, they sort of said, you know, other people who bought this book also like this, you know, it's sort of the AI at work and, and Arcado can do that too. So if you, they see, well, you know, this person always orders strawberry yogurts, you know, they might have something that's a slightly healthier strawberry yogurt. So have you thought of this? So it's all these sort of interesting machine learning tools that they can add to that. They don't still still know that competition is not standing still because they also see this opportunity. And Arcado has invested and still investing a lot in technology. You know, robotic picking is this sort of their next area. So it's uh, they're fully aware that this is a competitive arena. I do think the fact that they have a dual system where they, you know, all the new technologies they have, they can test out and they can see if it works and they can try to get the costs lower and lower and get it really humming and then sell that on to overseas customers. Well, staying on that, say if you're sitting next to Tim Steiner, the CEO, what would you want to see him doing and what capital allocation decisions would you be supportive of? Do you want him to be investing more in the technology? Do you want him to be investing more in overseas expansion or would you want him to be, I don't know, officer, <laughs> maybe it's too early, but you know, paying back a dividend? I think they have so many growth opportunities that I absolutely want them to keep investing in technology. You know, I think technology, no one knows exactly where things will go. So it's a bit like investing, Doug, that, you know, you need to try lots of different things to see which one works. So I have no doubt that some of the money that Ocado invests end up you know, not in a new product, but some do end up in new products. And I think that's what, you know, that's what matters. So this is this ongoing innovation is absolutely critical to, you know, keep delivering the best product to their overseas customers. Because if Arcado can give them a grocery technology solution, that it's the lowest cost that should help their overseas clients or their overseas supermarkets, you know, to gain share because they can provide a winning offer. They've got an Ocado equivalent. I think it's called Voila. So this is in Canada. And, you know, people love it. You know, very, very high customer ratings. The Canadian counterparts are absolutely over the moon and they are gaining shares and if they gain share that is good for Ocado so it's sort of a virtuous cycle which needs capital investment so no I'd be quite sad if they start paying a dividend because it's sort of a sign that you know they're running out of growth opportunities so you know I think getting costs down, getting lots of interesting flexible models that customers can integrate so you can store pick, you can have a big warehouse, you can have a small warehouse, and it can all be integrating seamlessly. I mean, ideally, as a customer, I would like to minimize the number of deliveries we get at home. So if through Ocado, you know, we can also get Amazon delivered, wouldn't that be wonderful? So we don't have to keep opening the door. But that's for the future. And clearly in the UK with the joint venture with Max and Spencer's, you know, we're getting more and more M&S products in our Ocado baskets. So you're already sort of getting both your groceries as well as your tea towels or your pillows and your socks or whatever it is you want to order from M&S. Mm. been an interesting year from an investment perspective because I think we've almost been asked to sort of work out which trends, particularly in digitalization, which trends have been cyclical and which are sort of more secular as we go back to normal are here to stay. 
And I wondered if you could comment, maybe taking out that crystal ball of yours, I wonder if you could comment on whether or not we go. So we were 5%, then it went up to 12%. Where do you think your online supermarket should be? It's more where it can be. Now, every country is at sort of a different different starting point, and the UK was already quite high. So that's interesting that even though we don't have many technology companies, the UK population loves technology, and <laughs> we really embrace it. So, you know, could it go to, you know, maybe the 30% that we have in clothes and in books and that sort of stuff, you know, possibly? As you can imagine, Tim Steiner thinks it could go to 75%, which to me sounds a bit high. You know, it's not going to be a straight line. So I think once, you know, we can all go to the supermarkets again in the UK, I think some people will because, you know, some people just sort of think, well, I've not seen the outside of my house for so long. I actually, this, this now becomes an experience. So I suspect that initially the share will go down a bit. But then I think people just realize, well, actually, it's a bit of a chore, you know, buying the same stuff each time queuing in for a checkout driving there so i think initially the share will probably go from 12 maybe it'll go back down to 10 but it certainly wouldn't surprise me if it can go to you know say a 20 or 25 percent you know which is a doubling from here in the uk whereas in other markets in some areas in europe it it was below a two percent so there's a lot more to go there if we're going at the same direction. But I do think this is now structural because, and this is, I'm not sure if all your listeners are UK buyers, but all the major UK supermarkets have started to do this. So Tesco, Sainsbury's, Morrison's, they all are creating opportunities to deliver online so you don't have to go to the store. And I think they will continue this. And, and Tesco themselves, you know, they've laid out a plan to create these sort of, They call it micro-fulfillment centers that will take up a part of their store, you know. So partly it's fulfilled by a sort of logistic system that, if you like, is basically gets you you create a put in a fake wall and then you've got a logistic center on the other side of it. And that maybe fulfills 75% of the order and then the other 25% get picked on the other side of the wall. So that's Tesco's system because they have the shop so they may as well sort of use the stores. Tanika, just to pick you up on something you said about technology not being well represented in the UK stock market, I wonder if you can comment on why you think that is. And given that we have some of the best education facilities, universities, etc. in the world, we're, broadly speaking, on a global scale, early adopters in technology. Why are we missing the link in, in terms of representation in our stock market? I'm not sure if we're missing anything. I mean, we've had some great world-leading technology company that have been bought. Yeah, so, so you know, ARM is a chip a semiconductor company is, is an example. So some companies have disappeared. We had quite a few IT consultancy that have been, you know, gobbled up by Europeans. So there's nothing wrong in, in the UK, but you start where you start, right? So, you know, we start in the UK markets with a very high weight in oil and energy companies. And so for others to become more meaningful, sometimes something else needs to shrink. We do have technology, you know, there's some software companies, an increasing amount of sort of clean energy kind of companies, not sure if they sit in the technology arm. So there are technology companies. But also, you know what, Doug, I think increasingly it's probably i think we need to look beyond the label technology 
And the US does that already. You know, Amazon is not a technology company. It's a consumer discretionary company. Netflix is not a technology company. Again, it's a consumer discretionary company. But, you know, what drives their growth is the use of digitization. So Ocado is a technology company. You know, we have a company called Relics in the UK, which is classified as an industrial, will you believe it? So this is, you know, because they sell products to other businesses. So it's called the support services, the business support services. But in reality, 75% of their products are digital. And therefore, it probably also is a technology company. You know, so I think the digitization is growing dramatically amongst UK companies, but those UK companies are not found in the technology sector. They're found in other, you know, I think media companies, they obviously increasingly use technology. (laughs) Even oil companies, mining companies are using technology increasingly. So I'm hoping that that's clearly, you know, within, if you have it hidden within an oil company, that's a bit like the tail wagging the dog. It takes mm-hmm. quite a while before the dog flies around. So that will take time. But there's lots of interesting opportunities within the UK where digitization is the growth driver, but they sit in a different sector. And I think that makes it interesting for us to actually find those companies and sort of look at with sort of more of a technology perspective rather than sort of a traditional industrial perspective. I think it's an interesting point. And actually, it's a point really raised by another podcast guest, William DeGale, who made the point that, you know, technology is no longer an industry vertical, it is an economic horizontal. And so, you know, the companies that are winning at the moment are the ones that are using technology, as you say, in a better way to enhance the value proposition for their customers. Now, Turning back to your portfolio, Tinika, are there any other areas that you would highlight of companies that are doing just that, that are using technology to increase the value proposition for their customers or to cut costs? Yeah, no, I think one you know really interesting one, that's a combination of that they had invested in technology and we had the pandemic. It's a company called Prudential, which on the surfaces looks like a boring sort of health and life insurance company. But they're focused in Asia. So they're they're selling insurance products in Asia. And initially, when the pandemic hit, because usually these are quite difficult, complex products. So the normal way would be that you'd have an agent that would come and visit you and sell you the product, or you would go to a bank and there would be a bank insurance person who would sell you the product, a very much a face-to-face sort of interactive kind of sales process. Obviously, the pandemic hit and then, you know, kudos to the Asian regulators because in a very short term, they sort of realized because some of this is health insurance, you know, so when there's a pandemic, guess what you want to do? You want to really think about the health insurance for your family. So the local Asian regulators, you know, very quickly allowed these insurance products to be sold on a virtual platform. So through Zoom or other equivalents. And, you know, because Prudential had enabled all their agents sort of, you know, with tablets and mobiles because they saw that that was the way forward anyway, 
You know, this just meant that agents can be so much more productive. And I remember the, the CFO describing this really interesting example of, you know, in Indonesia, which is obviously lots and lots and lots of different, you know, islands, some small, some big, some safe, some less safe. But it used to, you know, it takes some agents a day to go on their scooter to visit a potential client and then travel back again. So hugely and with potential sort of, you know, safety issues on the journey. And now this agent can do that from their home. So you can just imagine how much more efficient agents can be, how much more scalable, how many more clients they can have. And Prudential is only at the start of this, you know, and some agents need to retrain because as you can imagine, selling a product face-to-face requires quite different skills from, you know, doing this online. So they've invested in training, but yeah, it's both a cost saver, Doug, but it's also you know, it accelerates growth because they can really reach parts of Asia where otherwise they probably couldn't profitably go. So it really has made, you know, health insurance more accessible to much greater part of the population. So I think it's it's fascinating. And, and so this is the, the sort of virtual selling of insurance it, it is, I think, really interesting. But Prudential has also launched this app called Pulse, which about 12 million people have downloaded. I mean, this is a large number. Have you had to adjust your investment process? And let's stay on the example of Prudential and valuing or one of the metrics to value you know, life insurance companies or actually, I suppose, even banks in some of these developing nations was to look at the branch network to see how many people these insurance companies can reach easily. With the rise of technology in these platforms, Pulse, for example, with the rise of and the investment in these platforms, that branch network presumably is less relevant, less relevant. Do you therefore have to look more carefully at the technology spend, say R&D spend, CapEx spend and technology, rather than old-fashioned things like branch network and insurance agents? You know, I think that you're right. So I think the branches are still important. You know, I think it's probably the number of agents that they have that becomes more important. You know, the number of active users on an, an app like Pulse, you know, the number of new leads that have been generated from that. Maybe a simple metric, maybe cost per acquisition. Has the cost per acquisition of new customers, for example, for potential come down as a result of technology? You know, I would think that will happen. But I have to say, you know, Doug, we're in the very, very early stages of this. So I don't, you know, we it's something that I will be monitoring very, very closely. But I think we don't know yet how scalable agents will be. The only thing that I do know is that they will be a lot more scalable, you know, <laughs> but is it double what they had before? Is it triple? Is it four times? You know, so, you know, I see it that the growth opportunity has been, you know, accelerated enormously and the costs have been reduced. And yes, there'll be an ongoing technology cost, but once they've rolled out everywhere, it's probably relatively easy to update apps But yes, over time, we will see most companies spend more on technology and 
that makes me also, you know, I'm still very optimistic about the growth potential for technology companies, you know, either if they're classified as such or if they really use it to push their growth up and their cost down. Absolutely spot on that we will need to think more about what actually is, I think we call, technically we call it the addressable market. So the number of potential insurance customers for Pru could have doubled, you know, and this is, you know, I'm shrugging my shoulders, which you won't see. But. No, <laughs> but, of podcasts, but, brilliant. <laughs> but it's a good, okay, well, it's a good point. So the addressable market increases. Does though, question, does the value proposition that Pru offer decrease because of the risk of startup insurance firms that can access that market using technology? Does the risk of disruption increase at the same rate? That's exactly, you know, what I asked, you know, management as well, Doug, you know, because this is still a regulated product, you know, yes, it can be sold virtually, but Amazon can't sell life assurance. It needs to be a regulated insurance advisor in order to do that. So so the barrier to entry remains that this is a complex product that if it's not done right, there is a real risk of mis-selling. And that is the barrier. Now, their competitors in Asia are also investing in technology. You know, so the Peru is not unusual in that. It's just because of the market, the Asian population is, you know, the level of insurance is so low that, you know, there's a lot of room for really good regulated players. So, and ultimately, most of the more complex regulated stuff, well, actually all the regulated stuff comes through agents or advisors. Returning to the UK market, the backdrop of disruption as a result of technology, are there any industries or sectors that you are avoiding simply because you think that, you know, in 5, 10, 15 years time, they won't exist? I'm not sure about the 5, 10 years, but there's certainly business models that, you know, are being disrupted and that businesses need to adapt in order to prosper. And clearly at the moment, you know, we talked about the increasing buying stuff online that's put an enormous pressure on traditional retail, you know, traditional shops. In the UK, we've had a lot of clothing stores going bust. So we have fewer and fewer. And I suspect that those that we have left will end up having, you know, either 100% online or a really good online offering. So, you know, for those kind of companies, we you know, look for those who, you know, pick up the baton and try to adapt to the new world. Actually, I'm a firm believer of companies adapting to the new world. The pace is often not what we want. So it all depends how they behave. But in general, I tend to, so structural, you know, pressures are absolutely key. And we look at that carefully. You know, in general, probably the sector I'm least enthused about in the UK market is the banking sector. And part of it from the structural point of view is that with interest rates are so low, they just don't make a lot of money. And with the regulation that had tightened 
dramatically after the financial crisis. It's left many banks unable to borrow a lot of money. So this gets a bit technical, but mm-hmm. you know, they have to source their money from different sources. And those sources rank above us shareholders. So the returns to us remain very, very low and completely you know, unacceptable for the risks that bank take. And clearly in the banking market, you know, there actually are a lot of new entrants that don't have the legacy uh, structures that the main banks have. So, you know, typically that would be a sector that, you know, I don't see growth return is below expectations and it remains a sector that very, very regularly bumps into scandals and missellings and there's major fines so that your returns are already low and then they get wiped out because you've got a big fine. So for those things, we can't really, you know, forecast what, you know, the value add could be for our clients. So that sort of, in principle, I don't avoid many sectors, but certainly where there is a very low return and a very high risk of fines, it's not a great area. And in general, anything where you know, your whole regulatory, your existence depends on regulatory approval. So, you know, we've had lots of sort of issues, companies that operate in the online gambling or gaming space, if you like, because some of their models, you know, got banned <laughs> by regulators. Mm-hmm. So it's where companies are not in control of their own destiny as much as we would like them that I really think it's we can't put our clients money into that. Tineke, I can't have you on the podcast and you not speak about probably the highest profile IPO in the UK. Deliveroo is coming to market. I wondered if you could perhaps comment on you know, how it fits against the way you look at stocks and whether or not it's of interest as a result. Well, I think Deliveroo, you know, has benefited enormously from the pandemic. We're a very loyal customer, I have to say. So it really fits the growth profile. It's a bit similar to Ocado. I think the addressable market to the number of customers that Deliveroo can reach is huge because typically once you're on board, maybe you order once a month and then typically then maybe you order twice a month, you know, and that's all all gained. So I think the growth opportunities for Deliveroo are strong. They're also, you know, moving, I touched on earlier, they're moving to deliver sort of smaller grocery baskets to households. That's an interesting area. They are present in a number of countries outside the UK. So there are opportunities. This is a very competitive. So that's the plus. <laughs> you know, you touched earlier with Prudential, you know, isn't technology, you know, doesn't make it easy for new entrants and for regulated products. It isn't. But for deliveries, you know, food, home delivery is not a regulated product. So the, the number of startups is vast. The technology that Deliveroo uses is a commodity. It's nothing, you know, nothing that competitors can't do. Um, so where then is the value proposition in Deliveroo? Is it scale and, and network effect rather than technology? Absolutely. So this is, so it's not technology. It's hyper local scale. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm in North London. So what Deliveroo would try to do have the widest choice, the most interesting choice of restaurants lined up, you know, maybe throw in a co-op, maybe throw in a Sainsbury, maybe even a Shell petrol station so you can get some stuff from the convenience store as well, maybe a DAC kitchen. 
so that the choice from a customer point of view is the richest possible. And then maybe, you know, you pay a monthly subscription. You know, you launch Delivery Plus, costs 12 quid, I think, per month. And if you can get lots of more choice, then it might be interesting. For the riders also, you know, because that's the other issue that the riders they use, so these are on bicycle or on moped or scooter or something, you know, ten, generally two wheels, they're self-employed. And that, that's another big controversy because they basically get paid per delivery and therefore, you know, there is no sick pay, there is no holiday pay, there's no pension they only delivery only recently started to offer accident insurance, you know, whereas I think that and I don't know if that is costed properly, you know, so but for a rider point of view, you know, they earn the most. If they can do more than two drops per hour, mm. then maybe they break even with the minimum wage. So if hyper local scale is vital. And they probably have that in London and they need to get that elsewhere. But obviously, so does the competition, you know, so just the takeaway is investing a lot. Uber Eats investing a lot. So they're up against a lot of strong competition. So from my point of view, I think the market is interesting. The barriers to entry, you know, I think rely on that hyper local scale. And it's kind of not possible to have it everywhere, you know, because Deliveroo focused They've got some of the main cities and the only way they can grow is now to go into other cities where maybe, you know, their competitors already have, have something up against them. So it's a very competitive space, but it is an interesting area. And I do think they have lots of areas of growth, but we don't know yet about the cost. I mean, they're in the UK court now to find out if their riders can stay self-employed. The courts have already found that the Uber Eats drivers are not self-employed. So Uber has sort of worked a way out that, you know, you still stay it's sort of a hybrid model. You sort of still stay self-employed, but within your pay, there is a little bit of sick pay. There's a little bit of holiday pay, a little bit of pension pay, but it's only for the hours that you work. So it's a bit of a hybrid model. We don't know what that means for the cost base for Deliveroo. I know in Spain, the courts found against this type of model. So all riders in Spain needs to be fully employed on, you know, a normal kind of contract. You know, we don't really know what the cost base will be. And I think this is a case, Doug, where clearly, what do you call it again? Gig economy. The gig economy. The gig economy. Thank you very much. I'm just too old for this now. (laughs) You know, the gig economy is a new-ish model, right? And, And I think... When, you know, and I'm not quite sure yet if it's good or bad, but the fact it's there. And I think regulators and, you know, courts don't quite know yet what to do with it. But I think over time, we'll probably find a bit more of a hybrid model where workers' rights probably are protected and it does feel fair. But I think we're not there yet. So the whole cost structure of these businesses, you know, we don't quite know where we end up. Now, and that would be a risk worth taking if something comes very cheap. But from what I've seen, it doesn't look like it It will be hugely cheap. You know, I always have sort of an issue with disclosures. Uh, uh, you know, I've literally today finished going through the prospectus of, you know, about 300 pages. And there's a lot of stuff not disclosed. They don't disclose how many customers they have in all the different countries and how it's grown year on year, for example. So it makes it difficult to know what's really going on. 
what I have spotted is that they pay their directors very well. <laughs> so yeah, that, that's one that's thing, the, at least. They, yeah. Someone's getting paid. Yes. So there's some very nice. I think the L tip, so this is a long-term incentive plan. If they mm-hmm. hit hurdles, which they don't disclose, you can have six times your salary. I mean, that, that's bigger than any listed company I've seen in the UK. Usually it's two or three times. That's pretty punchy. So six times, it's very lovely for uh, those directors that work there. That's very interesting. I sort of think Karl Marx would probably be turning in his grave in terms of the degradation of the workers' rights with the so-called gig economy. And I think, you know, you've summed it up pretty well. You know, the regulators not working against them. The value proposition isn't in the technology. It's in the scale. And the value, I suppose, of the business is sits way out in the future. Danica, I'm going to ask what I ask everyone on these podcasts. Um, What advice would you give to younger analysts and associates um, who are coming up and and looking and wanting to sort of forge a career as a fund manager? What do you think the sort of uh, key attributes of a good fund manager are? And secondly, what do you look for when you're looking at for analysts and associates? Well, I always think that if you're interested in the career of an analyst, I think curiosity is vital. You know, you need to want to know how things work, why they are the way. So, you know, asking lots of questions, digging deeper and be enthused and intrigued by understanding stuff, by knowing stuff about companies. There's always a high level of detail needed, you know, and it's clearly, I mean, I joined this industry in 1998, you know, I would hope that people who join now are a lot more tech savvy than me because there's, you know, digitization in what we can do in gathering data and interpreting data, you know, it's fantastic, you know, so I think an interest in that is probably useful. And I think from a fund management point of view, you know, it's the relationship and the trust you can build up with clients. And I think explaining things to clients in a way that is fair and is understandable is important. Owning up to when you got things wrong is important because it's a guarantee that we will pick stocks that, you know, just turn out to be something quite different from what we thought. But we will also pick some stocks that, you know, shoot the lights out. And we're much better than what we thought. You know, we need to sort of be honest and explain to clients you know, how that all happened. You know, this is a career that's so versatile. Not a day goes by. Every day I'm learning something new, which is just fantastic. So, you you know, if you're interested in learning, if you're interested in building trust and long-term relationship with clients, it's a really, really great industry. Tineke Fricke, thank you for joining me. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, and our guest this week, Tineke Fricke. If you want any more information about Waverton or indeed the Waverton UK equity funds, then head to our website at waverton.co.uk. If you've enjoyed this episode or indeed the series, then why not like us and subscribe and maybe tell a friend or colleague. The information provided during this podcast does not constitute investment advice and should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security.